This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hello. Our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hey, Katie. So we have a lot to talk about on this week's episode. At the end, we're going to have Richard talking to Joe Wright, the director of The Darkest Hour, which is the film about Winston Churchill. And we'll also be joined by Rebecca Keegan, who was at the Academy's Governor's Awards on Saturday and has lots of stories to tell from that. But first of all, we'll get into the biggest release of the week, which is Justice League. Richard, your review went live at, I think, uh, 3 a.m., 2.50 a.m. The embargo was very strange. It was uh, 2.50 a.m. Eastern time, so right just before midnight on the West Coast. (laughs) Just yeah. the, the the time where everyone is just waiting for it. The, uh, the, the so, true uh, witching hour. Yeah. I love that. That's such a troll. It's such oh, a yeah. brilliant troll. Oh, they, just... they, I mean, they, there, there were a lot of troll <laughs> elements of this whole thing. I mean, they were really, you know, like they were really withholding about when the screening was going to be. Right. They, and then when you got to the screening, there was a, a press notes thing that was about the the, 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 the width of, a, of an Ian McEwan novel. I mean, it was like, it was so, so not too long, but long enough. I mean, it was just like, they're really just kind of like, I don't know. It's a funny approach to how this movie. Why did Why did they even bother showing it to critics at this point? It's just like that's a really good question. I don't know. know. It, with 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 many things, I'm indignant about that. I'm like, no, it, it, critics should see it. Like you know, like regardless of what they think, the, you know, if the movie's gonna be good. But this, it's like, guys, you're it's just... like a Sean Spicer press conference. It's just like, there's, you know, there's no point. Just yeah. put the movie out. Yeah. Even weirder was I the screening I went to last night was a mixed critic and general audience. And there was a big disclaimer on the screen uh, in front of, you know, it was like 80% general audience in this big IMAX theater. And there was a big disclaimer on the screen that was like, please don't talk about this on social media until opening day. And I was like, oh, really? That's going to work on the all these people in the IMAX theater? They're not going to talk about what they just saw on social media? What the point is that? What? Why would you do it, especially that? Especially because there were already tweets out from like last week. There was like a junket screening and they did, they put an embargo on reviews, but not on social media. So like there right. were already tweets. It's just like, I don't know. I, th- these things are mystifying to me, but. Um, well, there's the whole mishgas about how Rotten Tomatoes isn't going to be releasing a score. Like all the reviews are out, but presumably as we record this, there's no score in Rotten Tomatoes and they're going to reveal it on their Facebook show. But Warner Brothers also yeah. has a minority stake in their parent company. It's, it's all messy. <sighs> <laughs> yeah the 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 um the whole um rotten tomatoes score reveal feels very much like our president being like you know stay tuned i'm going to announce the supreme court and i'm gonna, you know it's very like it's like this these are things that should not be uh many people say this film is 96% fresh <laughs> right, right what's what's fascinating is um the way the reactions are divided you know there are these uh, you know and richard's grappling them 
with them today, thanks to his review, I think. But like, there are these die, ride or die DC fanboys who see this Rotten Tomatoes withholding the score as, um, an evil move against, uh, Warner Brothers as to say, like, either they're hold, they're hiding a good score, which they're not, or, um, they're putting too much of a spotlight on the reveal of a bad score. Like that, that's the DC fanboy sort of theory about it. Whereas the rest of us are like, no, you're, they're doing nothing but, a favor for Warner Brothers by holding back this score as long as possible. Yeah, you might you might be more plugged into these particular this particular mindset than I am, Joanna. But like the thing about the DC thing, I get like that these are loyal. You know, they like the comics. They're they're rooting for the, the movies. They like the shows, presumably. But like we've now had a success of other than Wonder Woman, like a a pretty like a like four movie now run where the movies have. I mean, to my mind, have not been good, and and that's been the general critical consensus. Why is there still this kind of conspiracy theory? Like, I mean, I, I just don't understand. Like, is it impossible for for these fans to accept that the movies just maybe aren't good? Um, <laughs> I mean, it, there's this weird. I mean, I, let, let's not go too deep into it because it's crazy. But there is this weird Marvel versus DC competition that's been going on since the dawn of time, and. uh it's it's almost like uh, not to make it too political the trump supporters who like no matter what trump does they will support him because they supported him in the first place and that's what they do and they're sort of like dug in on it you know what i mean so consider them the like rural farmer interviewed in a diner in the middle of who's like trump's still doing great you know like that's who the dc fanboys are so but is it i mean do they like the movies do they think for them are the movies good that's that's yeah it's a good question mike I mean, do those, those people like Trump? Um, no, no. Well, I mean, the- like, I'm a. In other words, I'm a Yankee fan. So just to take it out of, because I, uh, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. To, sure. I'm a Yankee Fair. fan, right? So and mm-hmm. like, I hate the Red Sox. I basically hate Boston. I have and to leave. Right. It's Goodbye. totally irrational. <laughs> um, and if the Yankees do most of the things the Yankees do, uh, there's one rare occasions where I'm like, okay, now that's enough already. You know what I mean? Like a right. Rod was where I was kind of like drawing a line. But up until then, all of the sort of like things that the Yankees do that aren't maybe like no one else likes i'm like fine whatever that's that's my team and as long as they win or sometimes they don't win i still love them so is that it's 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 that it's team team sports basically well it's team sports but i think it's also they're slowly losing the people who are like you know because a bunch of people like man of steel i didn't but a bunch of people did and then fewer people like batman v superman and fewer people like suicide squad and fewer i think once people see justice league there it's it's just going to keep winnowing down to these like core zealots and and then the core zealots get i think almost a little scarier the smaller their numbers are you right. know so um but you but, but richard and the critics happening. you're in the position of like the refs or the umpires you know, well, I mean, it's like it's like you guys are <laughs> deciding in some way, at least in their minds, if this thing is a success or a failure. And so there's an effort to kind of like work, work the refs. Well, yeah. And there's a very it's a, it's, I mean, we've talked about this thing before, uh, either on the website or on the, on the podcast. This, this this funny dichotomy between at one point uh, on one measure, the critics don't matter, like whoever, like you know, you're you're just a shill for Marvel, whatever. But then they also are so invested in what the reviews say. So it's this kind of like they really want you to say nice things things about this thing it's really and then they dismiss it if you going don't back to the political metaphor it really here, is but yeah yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah 
It was interesting around Wonder Woman because, you know, as Richard, I, I do want to get to Richard's great review because it's so good and I love when Richard's angry. But um, <laughs> in, in that review, he mentions the fact that like Wonder Woman was this just very bright spot of the year in terms of like, you know, I liked it. A lot of people loved it, you know, but critics liked it. Audiences liked it. It's really nice when we can all get along and just be like, what a nice movie, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but even then, there was a core a rotten core of the DC fanship that was angry that the critics like this movie. You know, they're angry no matter what. And um, I don't know how to solve that. So I'm, but all I want, I'll tell you this much. I don't care about Marvel or DC partisanship. All I want is a good movie and justice league is not a good movie. So, you well, know. yeah, I mean, that's the thing is like, I have, I had more than a few people tell me on Twitter last night, this morning that, that I, you know, well, I just went in wanting to hate it. And it's like, okay, maybe there's some truth to that. But like in general, if I have to see a movie for my job, and write about it like it would be great if i loved it like that would yeah. be that would be nice i would right. lo- i'd rather have a pleasant two hours or a, or a or a really positive two hours than like not being you know into it so well i'm curious so you open the door like maybe there's some truth to that what's the truth to it uh, well just that i haven't liked the, the past movies right. you know except for wonder woman you're going so, in at least bracing to be well yeah i mean unhappy and i think that like the the assumption that i could review this in a vacuum when when the by very design this is the next installment in a franchise in the same way that thor ragnarok was the next installment in the yeah. avenger you know it's like these are built to be successive experiences yeah. and so of course i'm going to bring in the you know what i saw before yes. in, into the th- the new thing you know i think but wouldn't it's, you it's, think that um that wonder woman would kind of make you want to like it more like there was a sense in, over the summer it's like oh well wonder woman might mark a new direction for them and this is going to be kind of a more cohesive DC universe so I think there was almost more hope for this than maybe for Batman versus Superman and of course I was you know and also like I was a kid who was read Star Wars novels and liked you know X-Men trading cards like I I, there's a there's a part of me still many years later that wants to have a go in and see a cool superhero movie like I'm I'm totally on board for that idea so so and 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 based on Wonder Woman I was like well you know hope against hope the Joss Whedon factor like maybe this is going to be something Mm -hmm. good and then it's just I mean it's 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 really astonishingly a, a poorly put together movie like in in a way that 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 suicide squad while i hated and i think it's a really annihilating movie at least had some sort of perverse point of view whereas this one is just like it just feels like it was made either by committee or i think i said in the review by like an algorithm it's just so well well, when you you know Zack snyder had to leave the production because of very tragic events uh, that happened in his family um and so joss whedon came on to sort of a, a finish the movie but then by some reports that i read basically reshoot a good portion of the movie which you can tell because um this was also reported in the trades henry cavill had grown a mustache who plays superman had grown a mustache for mission impossible uh they need him for reshoots he refused to shave the mustache so they cgi deleted his mustache from all the reshots <laughs> you can tell so and you can totally tell. you can tell yeah. and it's a it's a helpful way to track what's a reshoot and what's not because if he's got like this frozen botox lip you're like oh it's a reshot scene <laughs> real <laughs> like, housewives of metropolis kind of frozen face (laughs) i I look forward to the james franco comedy about this uh, about the production of this (laughs) film yeah but the but the tone is so different and like richard mentioned this is in his review it's crazy to think that you can just graft a weed in tone a light zippy we're having fun aren't we having fun tone on top of what Zack Snyder has been doing all along in this universe and those like as much as I love Whedon which and I do I love Whedon I love the humor and like if you if you put sort of Ezra, Ezra Miller's stuff as a flash in a vacuum 
because uh, he gets the brunt of the comic relief stuff. I enjoy that movie in a vacuum, but but uh, it it jangles out of tune when you put it with everything else that's going on. And so it's crazy that they thought that they could just like slap some Whedon on yeah. there and it would work and it doesn't. Especially because Whedon is so associated with the other rival franchise. It's just like an odd, I don't know, kind of thing. But I guess I'm, what I'm curious about and something I sort of ended my review on, you know, was saying that like, oh, poor Gal Gadot, like she looks so sad and it's like she just made this movie that people liked. And, and the, you know, I, I did make sure Justice League was filmed pretty soon after Wonder Woman was filmed. Uh, so I'm just projecting on, 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 you know, the movie. But like Wonder Woman has had a pretty not that quiet awards campaign. Like, yeah. like they've been screening it for, you know, yeah, like they voter. couldn't have put this thing out in and January. I, right, exactly. Like, I yeah. wonder or, or, now, or, or, does, or, or, or April, does yeah. this hobble that move that, that, you know, Wonder Woman's I, not, I don't think that Wonder Woman was actually going to get the best picture nomination they're clearly gunning for. Right. But like, I think that this might be the fatal blow to whatever hope existed. I liked the way you brought this into uh, awards. Hey, yeah. Well, well played. <laughs> well, and it's too bad. I, I think. I think what's clear, what I originally meant to get to, but I got off the point, what's clear about the Whedon reshoots is they tried to lean really heavily on, hey, remember, you liked Wonder Woman? So there's a lot of mention of Chris Pine's character from Wonder Woman in this film that to me feels a result of the, of the reshoots. And Wait, even though he's just like literally dead in this movie, right? Yeah. And been dead for a hundred years. I mean, yeah, sorry. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Superheroes love talking about the dead people that they love. So, <laughs> you know, they're like my dad and mom. They're going to they're going to do so. a chamber drama where it's just uh Captain America and Wonder Woman talking about their like dead dead old people <laughs> yeah. that they loved once yeah. or whatever. <laughs> I'm here for it. But, um, so, so that was really evident. But, uh, you know, I sort of ranted about this on Twitter this morning, but like the way that just, just the way that the camera treats, uh, Gal Gadot, who is a beautiful actress and is beautiful in Wonder Woman, but is like leered at in Justice League. It really undercuts like so much of the uplifting, like, and, and like classy treatment of the wonder woman story that patty jenkins did like that that to me that struck me as a very classy film and so i can understand why it was trying for some sort of oscar or something and justice league really really blows that up i think no, I agree. And, and, you know, I, the, my favorite part of your review is that poor Aquaman doesn't get to go into water. I mean, he's, <laughs> there's one scene in water, essentially. Like, and, I, you know, I made a joke. I, I linked to an old Simpsons episode or a, a scene where they're watching a show called Night Boat, yeah. you know, like Night Rider. And they're like, oh, but, oh, you know, now they're going on land. We can't do anything. And they're like, oh, no, there's a canal. And they're like, there, oh, there's always a canal or a fjord or an inlet or something. And I'm like, just give Aquaman the canal, you know, like provide some water next to where everything See, else is I happening. Think give Guillermo del Toro <laughs> should do the Aquaman go. movie. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Jason, Jason Momoa, I mean, the, on the underwater scenes, Injustice League are a disaster and make me really worried for um the the solo Aquaman movie. Yeah. What Jason Momoa is doing with Aquaman, which is like basically Aqua Bro, is just really very confounding to me. And then the last thing I'll say is that <laughs> there is a part where he like surfs a dead alien body through the oh, air. Oh God, I forgot about so, that. Yeah, yeah. So I think yeah. he kind of treats water as if it's uh, air, as if it's water too. Maybe like the droplets of moisture in the air <laughs> allow him to manipulate it. I don't know. It's like some midichlorians explainer right there. <laughs> you know, I can only try, Katie. I can only try. <laughs> so this movie is going to make money anyway like all signs point to it being like yet another superhero hit because apparently everyone will just go keep seeing them does that depress us about the future of this franchise or does it just feel like 
this is gonna be part for the course and we're just gonna have to deal with this superhero franchise that isn't actually that good yeah i mean i don't know i mean i th- I feel like it's um I-, I think that they're gonna see diminishing returns i mean i think that wonder woman was in in the sort of dc narrative as it exists right now like i think that wonder woman was kind of anomalous like i think it was i, I don't know i mean i don't I-, I i honestly don't see this movie performing as well and 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 maybe that will be some bellwether i, I could be totally wrong i thought the same thing about suicide squad and clearly i was i was wrong to the tune of like 800 million dollars or however much it was so so the worldwide the ranking of the dceu <laughs> which is what they call it so far is batman v superman is 873 uh, million worldwide wonder woman 821 million worldwide suicide squad 745 and man of steel 668 so i say it comes in around suicide squad numbers Hmm. okay like it's not going to capture i don't think it's going to capture the batman v superman like look how many characters we have in our movie don't you just love them sort of vibe because people got burned by batman v superman i know a lot of people who are not going to see this movie i mean i had at least at least two people tell me on facebook today oh i was going to take my kid to that but I think I still have to take him because he wants to see it, you know? So well, people, are still gonna go. I mean, people are still going to go. But for all the posturing of like, we don't care about to your question, Katie, are we just stuck with this franchise forever in this vein forever for all their posturing? If we don't care about what the critics say, I think WB, we know what WB much, much more enjoyed what happened around Wonder Woman than what happened around Batman v Superman, even though Batman v Superman made them 50 million more dollars, right? And so I think they are going to keep trying to recalibrate to chase that Wonder Man th- Wonder Woman thing. It was too late with Justice League because there's already too much like work done on it to completely course, course correct. But with something like the solo flash movie or wonder woman two or like getting Ben Affleck out of the franchise and casting a new Batman or whatever it is, or Joss Whedon's Batgirl, whatever's coming. I think we're going to see them chasing that. And in that way, the franchise does have a hope of getting better, but I think just given production schedules, there was no way justice league was going to be able to course correct uh, smoothly uh, more than just slapping some Joss Whedon uh, lightness and humor on top of Zack Snyder's whatever. Yeah, I mean, this is the studio that had the superhero movies that made people take superhero movies seriously. I mean, they had The Dark Knight, which everyone wanted to get a Best Picture nomination. You can imagine that they're still attached to that and still, you know, with their Wonder Woman campaign, want to get back to that point, even if they seem so far from it right now. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor. Let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. 
So we're now joined by our uh, Hollywood correspondent, Rebecca Keegan, who was recently at the what I think you, you called the first really stop on the, on the sort of road to Oscars, right? This weekend, the Governor's Awards? Yeah, this is the first big event that has all the contenders out. And it's usually one of the more pleasant nights of Oscar season because nobody's lost anything yet. Everybody's <laughs> technically in the race and they're all sort of... They're styled and and looking gorgeous and feeling upbeat. This year was different because of, of course, the Harvey Weinstein, et cetera, scandals that are roiling the industry. Right. And so I'm curious because, you know, this is a this is a, a on one hand, a really nice celebratory night because someone like, you know, Agnes Varda, the, the wonderful, you know, French director uh, at 89 years old, gets a, an honorary Oscar and. Angelina Jolie, her, who seems to be a new friend of hers, presents it to her. And, you know, Donald Sutherland is honored for his long body of work. Um, so there's that. But also, obviously, like you said, there's this darkness really now kind of poisoning. I don't spoiling anything this year. So what was the mood like kind of in the room? It was fascinating the extent to which there were the conversations people were having during the cocktail hour and around the long dinner tables that the studios all buy for their films. All anybody was talking about was the harassment issues. That's all anybody wanted to talk about. And yet on stage, it was like this twilight zone where none of this was happening and nobody acknowledged it. And it was especially interesting to me when I reflected on last year's award season in which people were talking about the election so much. And you had this sort of you know, incredible Meryl Streep speech at the Golden Globes about Trump. You had people talking at the SAG Awards as the Muslim ban was being rolled out. And it really felt like topical was okay. Like, and not only okay, you know, people were really engaged. This year, the topic is right here in our own backyards. And people are, at least at this first event, seemingly very reserved about talking about it on mic. Yeah, well, I mean, you've got a major difference here which is the home team is the the one with the problem now right exactly and, exactly. and i think the more you think about the academy's connection to uh this long-standing issue that has just sort of burst into the public in a new way uh the darker it looks as far as i can tell i mean you've you've still got as far as i know woody allen and, and roman polanski are you know have not been censured in any way by the academy ever uh, Harvey Weinstein has basically made his name by hacking uh, Oscar campaigning. Kevin Spacey has how many Oscars? Two Oscars. James Toback was going around using his Oscar nomination as, you know, a, a pickup line to to hundreds and hundreds of women. How like do you think people are get this this that, that the Academy has to do something serious to get out of the uh, enabling business? Well, it's interesting. I mean, among the industry groups that have responded, the Academy is one of the the Academy, which, of course, has this reputation for being glacial in dealing with current events, was actually among the first to do something in that they booted Harvey Weinstein and right. they're now coming up with a code of conduct. Yeah. For them, that's pretty radical and actually kind of controversial in a way. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I mean, last night, look, 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 the whole industry, not just the Academy, the whole industry is wringing its hands and pointing fingers. Last night, I was at this event at the Screen Actors Guild, where Gloria Allred was there talking to SAG members about sort of what to do if you're harassed, what your legal recourse is. And of course, you know, I'm talking to SAG members who are waiting in line to get into the event, and they're saying, 
all of them can name, you know, a casting director who's known in their circle to be predatory, uh, you know, uh, other actors, directors, producers. So it's kind of across the industry. And of course, we're interested in award season and how it impacts that. But as with the Oscar so white controversy, it's really the Academy is really reflecting this kind of industry wide issue. Right. But so far, it sounds like, I guess, be, while they're in process of, of trying to figure out what they're going to do, I guess they don't want to really say anything out loud. Is that what is that your sense? <laughs> well, yeah. And I keep asking them and they keep saying, well, we'll get back to you. So, I mean, they're yeah. trying to figure it out. They're mm-hmm. they're they're um, they have a group which is meeting and trying to come up with the code of conduct there, at least according to this um, letter that the Academy CEO Don Hudson sent to members, they are consulting with sort of ethics experts and legal experts to figure out the best way to do this, figure out a way for people to bring complaints forward and have them dealt with in a way that does not ruin the career of the person bringing the allegation. Um, It's all really complicated and thorny stuff. And, and some Academy members have said to me, that they're really concerned about creating this sort of atmosphere of fear and intimidation in the industry where, you know, you can bring forward an allegation and you're anonymous, but, you know, maybe, maybe you are sort of seeking revenge against someone who hurt you professionally. I mean, there are all sorts of ways in which coming up with a system is, while necessary, potentially fraught. And, and, and sort of, I'm, I'm curious, like, lower to the ground, sort of uh, beyond the institutional level, like, you know, you said, like, at the tables and at the cocktail hour that people were, that's what this is what people were talking about. Are, are they, are these people talking about it in sort of guarded terms? Are they saying, you know, you know, or is it, is it, if they talk about like a, a something that's, that's not far away necessarily, but, but not sort of in their, their own backyard, so to speak, like, uh, are people kind of, I don't know, in the, in the industry in LA, like sort of owning it or, or distancing themselves from it? Like, how, how did those conversations go? Well, a lot of people were sharing individual stories right. of, you know, um, uh, one producer was talking to me about a Kevin Spacey project that he has going and trying to figure out what to do with that project. I mean, it's already shot. So what's he going to do? Another person who works at a studio was telling me a story about an interaction he had with Harvey Weinstein when he used to work for him. So some of it is kind of like sharing war stories. And then there's also there the whispers about the people who have not yet had press accounts about them. You know, this kind of a, a uh, I feel like, you know, every day when I get into the office, I kind of play whack-a-mole with rumors. It's, have you heard about this person? Have you heard about that person? Who's next? So there's sort of the whisper campaign going on. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's it's very close to the ground in the sense that everybody's talking about their own personal interaction with it. It was also sort of interesting to see the way Dustin Hoffman's evening unfolded. He had been uh, sort of accused of sexually harassing an, an intern in a Hollywood Reporter story in 1985. He apologized for for that, um, and he was out uh, in this case to present to Owen Roisman, the cinematographer, and also he was representing his movie, The Meyerowitz Stories. He went, he took the stage. He received a very sort of warm round of applause from the audience of his peers. But it was interesting to me that during the cocktail hour, he sort of sat quietly at his table with his wife and he wasn't making the rounds in the room, which pretty much everybody else was. So I think that was sort of an example of someone who is kind of at, at the center of this controversy, though, the things he's 
uh, was accused of are, are far less egregious than than some of these other people were talking about. And you see how he's kind of navigating it and how people are not entirely sure how to navigate it with him. It's complicated. It is complicated. And I, 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 it's interesting that, you know, in, in a sort of social context, I mean, it's half work, half, you know, fun, something like that, that people are still sort of talking about it on the kind of, you know, granular anecdotal level. And so it, do, it doesn't seem to you, Rebecca, that like, you know, there had been some fear that there were a fatigue was going to set in and say like, oh, we can't talk about anyone else. Like it's enough, you know, but like th- that, that ball still seems to be rolling. Well, look, go- nobody ever has had enough of the gossip. Right. Well, course, people, yeah. people may eventually have enough of the sort of how do we fix this conversation? Mm-hmm. People tend to get bored with that real fast. Nobody gets bored with gossiping about people in the industry, even at an event like the Governor's Awards, which I would say the ratio was like 75 percent work, 25 percent fun at that particular event. But what about, what about the kind of idea of a backlash? I mean, do you do you sense a backlash brewing? Uh in any sense or or is it still because kind of people just trying to figure out like which end is up and is there a floor to this you know endless series of allegations i know people are worried about a backlash and one of the things there have been a lot of closed door conversations have it happening among powerful women in hollywood women at the agencies women at the studios trying to figure out what they're worried about is they see this as many of them as a sort of key moment when this industry issue is finally coming to the fore. And they are worried about um, people bringing forth allegations that might threaten this moment, you know, things that end up ultimately being disproven or people whose careers are hurt. And it ultimately is revealed that the accuser was, was not honest. A lot of these sort of behind the scenes, a lot of these powerful women are worried about that sort of taking away the momentum from this movement. Right, right. In a sort of a Duke lacrosse style, you know, exactly uh, explosion uh, that 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 leads to a lot of doubt. Right. Right. Um, One. Yeah. One false story kind of removing the the just calling into doubt all the other allegations, which are in in likelihood true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on, on a lighter note, I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> yes, if, please, if, thank you, please, Richard, give me a lighter note. It, I would it, love a lighter note. Such a thing as possible. So, so you know, this is this is also an event that's taking the temperature of of you know all this stuff aside, if we if that's possible, of of an of an award season and and and, and you know a very uncertain one. You know, um, was there anything or any buddy who was there uh that that clarified anything for you i mean i i think it's you know i i know that they've become buddies i kind of joked about it but you know that jolie was there you know to present agnes varda with this award you know was probably more of a personal thing but i does that mean that jolie is still in the hunt for first they killed my father like um did you pick up any of those frequencies yeah for sure i mean she um varda had actually four women who presented her jolie was the last one but also jessica chastain director kimberly pierce and i can't remember who the fourth woman was but but yes pretty much everybody who was there presenting had some sort of professional reason of of their own to do it one thing that was interesting to me to note is that in a room full of the most famous of the famous, the extent to which people were so excited to stop by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. Mm. You know, The Post is one of the few movies that we have not yet seen. It starts screening, I think, next week. Um, and they are really among, in a room of celebrities, they are the 
the celebrities. So, of course, you know, the jury's out on, on how the movie is, but just in terms of the extent to which the town likes them and wants their movie to be good, that that came across in just the number of people who are excited to to meet them and talk to them. Has anyone seen it? Like uh, in, not, in, in uh, town? Uh, uh, not that I know of. I mean, I know... Um, Spielberg was just in a, at an event last week for, um, uh, Rebecca Miller's movie. And he told some reporters, I think, um, Ann Thompson wrote a piece that he had literally just locked it and was doing the sound mix. So people, people may have seen, you know, uh, clips of it. They may have seen some footage, but he has, he hadn't finished as of last week. And the first screenings I know of, I think are next week. Yeah. I mean, just anecdotally, like when, when we were, um, had a meeting of the New York Film Critics Circle to vote on new members, this was a few weeks ago now. The word then was that John Williams was still putting the finishing touches on his score. So like it, it's, right. they're really, you know, putting this thing together till the I end. I mean, they moved at it a really quick pace yeah. from when they started production on it. So, um, I'm I'm excited to see it. I think that's that comes at an interesting time in terms of the themes that it's about. You have this, you know, Meryl Streep playing this powerful woman, Catherine Graham. You have the the issue of press freedom, which is certainly something that's topical. I I could see from the on paper, it sure looks like something that will appeal to the Academy. Yeah. Is there any other movie that, um, you know, f- from our vantage point, you know, we we're looking at Twitter and that, I don't know how useful that is necessarily, you know, what bunch of critics talking to themselves, but like from in, in, on the ground there, is there a movie that people are really talking about that seems to you to have, I mean, I saw that, you know, Saoirse Ronan was there for, at the governor's awards for Lady Bird. Like, is there anything kind of popping right now, particularly? Lady Bird seems to really be catching on with members. Um, yes. it, it's, it's yeah I, it's really interesting to see how many people are responding to that one or excited about it um and you know a24 i think showed last year with moonlight that they are able to sort of rally a passionate base for a smaller movie and and go all the way with it so it'll be interesting to see if ladybird is able to sort of take that momentum and go with it Dunkirk has also not gone away. You know, it, it it made a splash over the summer, and now they're doing a lot of the awardsy screenings. I went to an event at the DGA for Dunkirk, and people, now that they've seen most of the other movies, that one is continuing to rise to the top in terms of the craft and the sort of level of difficulty. It, it's sort of like a triple axel movie to a lot of people in terms of how hard what Chris Nolan did is. Hmm. So yeah. those are the those are the two that are jumping out to me right now. I mean, yeah, um, that's interesting. You know, most people have not seen the Phantom Thread. Um, right. There've been very very few screenings. One, the, I think the big sort of unveil for a lot of people is happening the day after Thanksgiving. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm going for to some reason, yeah, they love to just ruin Thanksgiving weekend by <laughs> by screening big movies that weekend in town. Um, but yeah, so the Phantom Thread. I think people are still waiting. The post people are still waiting, but a lot of the other movies now that they've ro- been rolled out, those are the two that seem to be rising to the top among the Academy members I'm talking to. Also, Get Out. It's interesting. Yeah. A lot of Academy members didn't see it the first time around when mainstream audiences did because they weren't necessarily in the demographic that was being targeted by the marketing. Now they're starting to see it and really responding to it um, kind of as a as a satire in a 
in the vein of a kind of Stepford Wives, you know. So yeah. that's that's been interesting to see how Academy members are responding to that, that film, is which is different. Really great to hear, yeah. um, because I really I do I think Lady Bird and Get Out to me are are like. Yeah. Probably the two strongest movies I've seen. I haven't seen everything, but but uh, those are the ones that really stand out to me. Well, and here in New York, you know, MoMA is doing a screening of Get Out in their sort of contender series that mm. I think this week or next. So, like, or not probably not next week's Thanksgiving, but like, you know, so that movie, th- th- that 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 careful campaign that has been lying dormant for a while is now yeah. kicking back. It seems here. like they're playing it. They're playing it nicely. They're yeah. doing it. Now's a good time to be starting to bubble up. I think yeah. for them. Well, and it was interesting. Um, I it was Chris Tapley at Variety reported that the Golden Globes is treating Get Out as a comedy. And I don't know if you saw, there was a lot of controversy over, is it a comedy? Isn't it a comedy? I thought it was funny that Jordan Peele weighed in on Twitter this morning saying it's a documentary. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And, and yeah, I mean, I think it's a satire, right? Satire is kind of right. people just, I mean, people on yeah. Twitter just everybody take fun, it down a notch. Whatever. Yeah. Also, like it's that it's, I mean, let's just be shrewd. It's maximizing its chances of winning Golden Globes. Like, fine. Yeah. Like, I'm right. I'm fine with that. Uh, you know, regardless right. of, of quote unquote category fraud. All right, Rebecca. Well, thank you for that. That, um, if people want to read, you, you did a, a good write up of the governor's words uh, on VF.com. Your work is really kicking into gear now. <laughs> Not that it hasn't been before, but like, I feel like. You're, you know, minus the hol- Thanksgiving holiday, I feel like you're going to be pretty busy. So we'll we'll have to. Check. I'm a farmer at the harvest right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly, perfectly said. All right, uh, well we'll we'll be back in touch with you soon. I'm sure. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks, guys. Take Bye. care. Bye bye. And now we're going to hear my interview with director Joe Wright, whose film Darkest Hour, a not exactly biopic of Winston Churchill, but captures a moment in time just as World War II was ramping up. We talked a lot about where he was in his career before Darkest Hour came along and maybe a little bit about where he is now that it's uh, done and also about what it's like to work with Gary Oldman, who's the star of the film and delivers a really towering transformative performance and uh, how that works between actor and director. Well, I have the pleasure of having Joe Wright sit across the table for me today, which uh, we're really happy you're here. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're doing, I think, a multifaceted Vanity Fair experience today. So I am a bit. I uh, hope yeah. we haven't worn you out. No, it's all good. Uh, yeah. But uh, I've just done uh, a video, Anatomy of a Scene, and now I'm here. Oh, nice. Yeah. Which, which scene? Can you, can you tell us? Is it that... was the scene where Winston's driving through the streets and then makes a decision to get out the car and go and meet the people oh yes yeah it's quite yeah. weird though because i shot shot the thing a year ago so it's difficult to remember the very specific details that yeah. were being asked that's something i want to i want to talk about this it, it was a pretty tight turnaround time for this movie but mm. um just going back so i saw darkest hour at telluride uh-huh. um which was a really receptive audience a really warm response it felt like and i think i saw the second screening of it not the first one right but something that that intrigued me and i, I wanted to ask you since you said it when you introduced the film you said that the movie is a lot about doubt mm-hmm. and that you had been experiencing some doubt in your own life and so these things kind of dovetailed together can you talk a little expand a little bit on that like what you meant in terms of the film and what you meant in terms of your own you know career or life or what was going on in terms of the film uh people always imagine that churchill never wavered in his conviction but in actual fact, what we find in the records, especially of the cabinet meetings, is that there was a point very early on in his premiership when the British troops were stranded on the beach at Dunkirk and it looked very much like they were going to get wiped out. And it looked very much like at that point, Germany would try and invade England. And so Churchill was being pushed to um to to negotiate some kind of peace deal with germany 
And in that moment, he considered that option and he came very close to actually pursuing that option. And so there's a moment within the film, uh, or, or it's really about, I guess, this moment when, uh, he doubts himself, he doubts his conviction, uh, and he, I guess, suffers a, a crisis of confidence, which then he pulls himself out of. And as mm-hmm. we know, the, you know, he, 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 he doesn't do a peace deal and, and he resists. But that was something I identified with without wanting to get too sort of personal. Um, I, I, I'd, I'd made a film that had not been well received and had lost, uh, the studio a lot of money. And, uh, I was, um, down in the dumps. Um, I, I, I doubted myself and my, my, my abilities. I kind of felt like maybe I had run my course as a, as a director. And I wondered whether, the film industry and the audience had changed to the point where I was no longer suited to the task. And that was a, yeah, that was a moment of doubt of, of, of a crisis of confidence. I mean, in that, in that kind of personal or professional point, like did darkest hour kind of call to you? I mean, how, how did, how did, how did you kind of come onto the project? Was were you seeking something like that? Well, what happened was I, I, I actually called up Alfonso Caron and he and a I, good person to be able to call up when yeah, you're yeah. feeling. And yeah. I called Alfonso and I, and we met and had a long chat about it. And I realized that I wasn't the only one who suffers such moments. And he suggested very, very wisely. He said, why don't you just go and watch all the films that made you fall in love with filmmaking in the first place? So I did that. I spent some time watching, you know, everything from Christoph Krzyzlowski, Tarkovsky, Hitchcock, Sidney Lumet, you know, and really remembered that it was really drama that I, that I loved. And then I got a call from Charlie Brooker, who asked me to direct an episode of Black Mirror. And I thought that that was probably quite a good way of getting back on the horse. Uh, it was just a four week shoot and a beautiful script with some, you know, and, and I cast, um, Bryce Dallas Howard, who I love and is an amazing actress. And so I found myself back on set with a great script, great actors in a room with people talking to each other and communicating or miscommunicating is more often the case. And, uh, and I loved it. And I remembered that that was what I loved doing. So I was certainly looking to just focus on doing drama and getting back to basics and stripping, stripping my aesthetic back a little bit. So when, and then this, and then this script turned up actually whilst I was in South Africa shooting uh, black mirror, this script turned up and, and I identified with it. And I always have to identify with the characters that I'm trying to realize. You're a little young for World War II to have loomed very large, maybe in your childhood imagination. Is that, no, is that it's accurate? Very big. It's very big in my imagination when I was a kid. My dad was born in 1906. Okay. Uh, and so, um, you know, he lived through the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um, and also growing up in London in like the 70s, there were still like big bomb craters everywhere and areas of London that were kind of uh, out of bounds or... I remember so playing in the in the in in the kind of bomb sites, and you'd kind of climb underneath the corrugated iron that was supposedly kind of stopping kids getting in. You climb climb under the corrugated iron and go and play in the bomb site, and so uh, so you can't avoid the Second World War in in in, in London, and especially the Blitz. You know, so much of London was destroyed at that time. Uh, it's it it does loom very large in our 
imaginations. And 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 did Churchill specifically factor into that? Like, did you know much about him before you um, got the script and, and started working on the movie? No, I mean, I, I, I knew a bit about him, yeah. but he wasn't someone who I was particularly interested in, to be frank. He's a he's a giant statue on a giant plinth in Parliament Square. He's the bulldog spirit. He's he's been co-opted by certain factions of the political spectrum that I don't necessarily adhere to. So he wasn't sort of a great hero of mine as I was growing up like he uh, has been to so many other people. But that was the point of the movie was to kind of take down the icon and and meet Churchill face to face and see what see what I could learn from him. And in 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 doing that, I mean you need to find the right actor and yeah. it needs to be somebody who is both going to do this remarkable act of transformation which is what gary oldman does in the film Mm. but also works in the broader texture of the movie so i'm kind of curious how that works when you're when you're dealing with with a you know you you've had some wonderful performances in your films you know whether it's kate blanchett wielding a pistol or you know uh, a young saoirse ronan you know first kind of arriving in the scene but like with this this is a really towering kind of iconic kind of thing how do you work with that? And then how much of it is Oldman coming to you with this fully formed? How much of it is a dialogue between the two of you? I'm just curious about the mechanics of, of a performance like that as a director. Absolutely. I mean, directing is really, you know, 99% casting. And having made the choice of Gary, I chose Gary in particular because he, I felt he, he had the essence of the character. The Churchill that I wanted to, to realize was a Churchill who was full of a manic, dynamic energy that sometimes resulted in complete collapse. And, uh, and, and Gary has that kind of dynamism, really, um, that sort of intensity. And I, and so, so, so I, I felt it was more important to cast a character, an actor who had the essence of the character rather than the physical appearance of the character, the physical appearance you can fake. Um, so having made that choice of, of, of casting Gary, I, you know, Gary had been, you know, Gary's the Don, you know, in, in growing up in London in the 80s and 90s, Gary's the Don, he's the man, he's the geezer, you know, he's the, he's the, he's the, he's the tops. And, um, uh, and there is no one in our kind of London imaginations that beats him. So, so he was a huge hero of mine. And I wondered as we began work in, and uh, as we began talks, I wondered whether, he would be someone who would just want to be kind of left alone to get on with it and and I would arrange everything around him but actually I was delighted to discover that he was interested in a complete collaboration and it's probably the closest collaboration I've ever had with an actor he wanted direction mm-hmm. and um and he seemed to trust me and I certainly trusted him uh, and so we we grew to a point of of almost sometimes not really needing to to finish sentences before the other one knew what the what what you were going to say. You know, it's um, uh, it was a it was an extraordinary kind of process. So I'm curious, like, you know, is there? I mean, speaking about doubt, is is there a moment when you're on set and Oldman has tweaked this performance to to what we see now on screen mm-hmm. and the lighting is right and the day is right is there a moment when you say oh my god we got it like this is it do you ever feel that or is there always a kind of questioning or a wanting of more you sometimes feel like you've got that day yeah or that scene you wake up every morning with this kind of punch in the gut of adrenaline slash fear 
you get up, you drink coffee, you, you plan your day, you do your shot lists, you're terrified that you're not going to get it, that you're not good enough. Um, uh, you work through the day in this level of high anxiety. And at sometimes, uh, if you're lucky at a certain point during the day, you start to kind of feel like maybe you're going to achieve this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, at the end of the day, if you're lucky, you think, Oh, I think I, I got that. That was really good. And you kind of can relax for an hour. And then the next morning you wake up with the same horror and fear. <laughs> so it's never, you, you never feel right. like you have the whole film. Right. You feel like you have pieces. A, a little maybe. piece. Yeah. Have, okay. I've got that piece. I've got that piece. And slowly you start to put them together. And then you don't know, you know, until you get in the cutting room, whether the thing's going to work as a whole. Really. Right. In fact, you don't really know until you put it up in front of an audience. Really, it's that it's that far into the process, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and you, you don't make it easier for yourself. I mean, you you have you are you're known for really artful, intricate shots, and 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 the, um and what I like about Darkest Hour a lot, um, other than the wonderful performances and just you know the sort of interesting story is, is that this could be a very staid kind of chamber piece, people yell, talking in rooms, you know. Mm-hmm. But you add this, these they're not they're these flourishes that are that are, that are that are that really fit the texture of the movie. How in your mind, when you start conceptualizing how you're going to shoot a film, when do those things happen? I mean, I'm thinking in particular, there's a, a lovely shot where, uh, I think it's Churchill's in an elevator and everything mm. is black around him and it's just, it's just this, it's almost abstract. Mm. Uh, when do those things kind of start to appear in your head, these, these particular visuals? They appear sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They start usually on the first reading of the script. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a sense of it and, and ideas will start popping into my head. And is that a good indicator that this yeah. is something you want to work yeah, on? If exactly. that happens, if yeah. you feel like you know a secret about the film, if you feel right. like you kind of, if there are certain cinematic moments that you can't help but desperately need to see realized, then that's a good indication. And so there are kind of tentpole moments that, that, that appear very early. And then you build slowly the joining sequences. So that elevator thing, I think, was actually on the first reading of the script. And I and I see them in my head. I kind of think cinematically, which is to say I think in image, sound, time at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's never like a, a still picture. It's the idea that one is using all the tools of, of film uh, at the same time. Yeah, and I think another another tool. Uh, and, and, and Dario Marinelli composed the score for yeah, Doctor Star. He's yeah. a frequent collaborator of yours. Absolutely. A- and 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 that as it did in um in Anna Karenina or you know uh, the score featured hugely in, at- in atonement. How crucial do you find that sort of soundscape to be when you're I- imagining the film, or is that sort of added later? I'm, you-, you get a sense of the tempo of a film, and then you have to work out all the elements that can build to the realization of that mm-hmm. rhythm. I, I, I personally feel like film is closest in relation to music than, than any other art form, uh, because of rhythm. I, 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 I really enjoy rhythm. And, uh, so early on in pre-production, I start talking to Dario and, and I, I send him the script. And then I think the first piece of music he composed was based on a photograph that, uh of gary as winston walking and we talked about this kind of 
thriller, political thriller aesthetic rhythm. And, uh, and, and, and so Gary's pace was really important to the realization of that. So I sent Dario this piece of, um, this photograph. I also referenced some kind of fairly modern minimalist music, wanted quite a minimalist score. Uh, so all of those conversations, then with the, all of those conversations, he then took that stuff and started to create themes. Mm-hmm. I would then play that music on set to give Gary a sense of the rhythm oh, of the music. Yeah. Uh, and then I would have that music in the cutting room uh, from from the get go. So it's pretty thoroughly integrated into. Yeah, yeah that's, I try and, that's really cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, I try not to do it like stage by stage, right. but integrate everything as I'm going along. So you said, you know, you, you said you reminded us that you, you were shooting something a year ago. Um, and, and this film, uh, it began production kind of late in 2016, right? Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, the, between Their Finest and Dunkirk and now, and, and Darkest Hour, there's obviously a recurring Dunkirky theme happening in British cinema right now. Do you think that that is an accident? Do you think that there is something about this, that moment in time that, Maybe it's Brexit. I don't know. Is speaking to Britons or, and filmmakers uh, in particular, or yeah, it's odd. I mean, when I started, I started work on the film in January 2016, mm-hmm. and so Brexit hadn't happened, and right. Trump hadn't happened, and the the uh, French elections and Dutch elections, um, and so it was. It, the film certainly didn't feel topical at all. And then as we 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 went into pre production, um, Brexit happened, and and the film took on a kind of topicality that was very surprising. I thought about investing the film with more of my own political opinions, but every time, every time I tried to do that, it felt didactic and felt kind of preachy. Um, so I, I actually stripped it back again and tried to focus entirely on the, on, on the, on the very specific character that we had, uh, the very specific time and also the very specific enemy that we were facing. And I feel that it's the, the filmmaker's job, the storyteller's job to present certain questions and scenarios and then respect the audience enough to be able to make up their own minds, uh, rather than try and sort of give any answers. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's something that really works well about the movie is that it, it, it lets you infer. Yeah. It doesn't beat you over the head. Yeah. It's like this is a moment in time, and we can we can take from it what we will. Yeah. We don't. And we I don't, think you know. that you know, it's in in times of uncertainty like we're going through now. Uh, I think it, we would do well to look at our history and try and learn from it. Learn from experience. Only a fool doesn't learn from experience, you know. And, and so, but without you know, I really wanted to avoid this kind of nostalgia for the past as well mm-hmm. you know things weren't better then things were worse then than they are now uh it's not about oh i wish it were like this when you know blah 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 for me it's it's you know it's it's just about trying to understand and learn something from where we come from and i and i think the the, the film provides that you know i think it's it's really cool and and you know whatever doubt you were coming from i think hopefully the 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 the, the, rece- the reception of this film has had laid that some or i don't know maybe it's well i think i think yeah. the making of the film has actually yeah. and and what i've discovered in that process is that doubt is a key a key factor for progress you know um so uh, i'm very glad i had that experience 
Well, Joe, thanks so much for talking to us. Uh, Darkest Hour opens in the U.S. Uh, next week, November 22nd. But yeah, uh, we'll see you at the premiere tonight. Thank you very yeah, much indeed. Yeah, thanks. Look forward to it. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye-bye. That does it for this week's episode of Little Gold Men. Thank you, as always, for listening. Please find us and rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts or really whatever podcast app you choose to use. Uh, you can find us all at VanityFair.com, writing about Justice League and award season and everything else. We're all on Twitter at Little Gold Men, where we love to hear from you. And we're all on our own on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich. Mike? Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard? Rylaws. And Joanna? Joe wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Jordan Bell, and thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the best description of soon-to-be-departing Vanity Fair Editor-in-Chief Graydon Carter goes to Joe Wright. Is the Don, is the man, is the geezer, you know, is the, is the, is the, is the tops. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.